Want more from your podcast app? Graduate to Pocket Casts, your free one-stop shop for podcast listening, search, and discovery. The beautifully designed app gives you more control and makes it easier to discover and organize podcasts with powerful tools to customize listening. Hear all your favorite shows at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. John Clare is seen now as one of the great poets of the 19th century and according to one of our guests today, the greatest labouring class poet that England has ever produced. He was born in Helpston on the brink of the fens near Peterborough in 1793 and knew the world around his cottage intimately. His work describes nature and country life in an extraordinary level of detail that few, if any, have equaled before or since and Clare also fires up against the threat to that countryside. For this he achieved fame in his late twenties, and though often, though often with the condescension from the London literary world, who made allowances for the man they called the Northamptonshire peasant poet. The last 24 years of his life were spent in what was then called a lunatic asylum. With me to discuss the life and works of John Clare are Sir Jonathan Bate, Provost of Worcester College, University of Oxford, Mina Gorgi, Senior Lecturer in the English Faculty and Fellow of Pembroke, Pembroke College, Cambridge, and Simon Kaveshi, Professor of English Literature at Oxford Brookes University. Jonathan Bate, what was the world into which John Clare was born? Okay, so he's born 1793, that's just after the French Revolution, contemporary of Lord Byron and John Keats. But he's born deep in the countryside, this little village called Helpston, halfway between Peterborough and Stamford, in what was then Northamptonshire, but is now part of Cambridgeshire. As you said, Melvin, on the edge of the Great Fen, the eastern flatlands of England. But his community was one that had really not changed for hundreds of years. Um, His father was a a casual agricultural labourer. He was brought up in a a tiny cottage. Um, But the the way in which the agricultural system worked there um, was unchanged since the Middle Ages. It was the old open field system where each peasant would have a little strip of land and the, the commons were available where you could maybe graze a cow. And this was very different from the kind of landscape that emerged later. So, um, as I say, dirt poor, agricultural labourer, little bit of education in the local school. Well, let's examine that, that poor, because uh, I think listeners w- would like to know the degree of the poverty in this country then in those sort of places. He started work part-time when he was eight, he left school when he was 11, as you say, he went to a dame school, he was taught reading, writing and arithmetic. But what, what sort of poor was it? His father was a day-job chap, sometimes he worked, sometimes he didn't. There were siblings, uh, they, if they sold a few apples, they, they got fed, as it were. It's, can you just go into that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, of course, labour is, is seasonal um, and if it was a bad harvest, times were very, very bad indeed. There was always the, the threat of the workhouse, the poorhouse. Um, the uh, very little, very little sanitation. 
um, and uh, a very a very basic diet. Although ha- having said that, I think one of the things that's so striking that emerges in Claire's poetry is is the tremendous sense of community. That for for all the poverty, the high in- infant mortality, um, the, the 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 beggars that you would see, there was a tremendous sense of community. But the also, village pub would be a, a place where where, where 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 the community would would work together, gather together. Yeah, but for this point, a, a tremendous sense of a tremendous fact of children dying soon after they were born and diseases and malnutrition. I just want to establish that. It, there's no fiddle going on, there's no weeping hearts, but that was what he was born into. And Absolutely. how did he discover poetry? That's a good question. I'm just going to add, he um, he had a twin sister, actually, who died as an infant, you know, exactly an example of that. And so much of Claire's work is bound up with a sense of loss and maybe losing that baby twin um, was some psychological part of that. But yeah, he was out working in the fields as a, a teenager and there was a, another boy um, who was reading a book and uh, Claire had had got some education at, uh, at, at, at the little local school. And the book was a volume of poems um, called The Seasons by James Thompson. Very popular, genteel poetry, but a poetry of landscape. And Claire read it, loved it. So he saved up his little bit of earnings and went along to the bookshop in Stamford and arrived before the shop was open, um, but duly bought a copy of this this book. And that really got him hooked on poetry, combined with the fact that there was a great tradition of folk culture, of ballads. His father would love to, to sing ballads and folk songs. His father was a fiddler. He, indeed he was, yeah. And, do, and f- could, could sing and play lots of songs. Yeah, and the, the gypsies as well. Claire, as a, as, as a boy and as a teenager, began to speak to the local gypsies and he, w- he would learn their songs. So it's a fascinating sense that there is this kind of folk culture, but he also s- discovers proper literature. But just to nail it, there is, it is accurate that there because there's a feeling of boy genius suddenly arrives in nature, which we all rather like. Never mind. Uh, but he did read this book. He saved up to buy it. Big thing for him to do. And he started writing poetry immediately. So something struck. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mina, Mina Gorgia, what can we say about his childhood and nature? Um, Jonathan's given us some lines, indicative lines already, but... What did he do? I mean, he, he was working a lot of the time. What else? He was a great noticer. He was a great noticer of the natural world. Um, he paid attention to things, a great attention to how the hawthorn bud would unseal, how the catkin was covered in downy white. And he recorded these in his poetry. He paid attention to the tiniest details that other poets before him hadn't mentioned. And he... And he also celebrated the landscape from where he was from, the local landscape, which was a, not a very um, glamorous place, really. It was a sort of swampy, desolate place, his publisher described it as, and he found beautiful things there to celebrate the wildflowers, the weeds. Um, and, he, and, he, and he describes them in his poetry in an intimate detail. Um, he weeds like the ragwort, which you know most farmers wouldn't like very much because it kills livestock, um, the fleabane. Um, his poetry is full of celebrations of these unsung things in the natural world. Did he deliberately go out to look for subjects for his poetry? Did, was there a sense in which he said, I love the poetry of Thompson, I want to be like that, I'm going to find things I can write about, oh, there's the rug word. Did he go out and look for subjects? No, I think they just came to him on his walks, on his rambles. And, and what's different, I think, about his poetry from Thompson's is that he's sort of really very much inside the landscape. He's there in amongst it, not talking about it from above, really. And he um yeah 
it comes to him on his rambles. I think he just he, he um, yeah he he he's a very sensitive and perceptive poet. You in talk that about way. these rambles. He 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 talked with lovingly about that part of his childhood mm. where everything was open, as Jonathan's indicated. It's mm. before the Dread Enclosure Act, which you're going to come to, mm. and he could walk everywhere. and He did walk everywhere, and he was a great noticer of things in detail. Uh, and so this was was a, a mass whole world to him, however mm. uh, mossy and uh, and uh, mm. submerged it might seem to a lot of other people near the fens. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was it was his world, a local world, and a world which he um, gave to people through his his verse, um, the swamp. We get a sense when you read class poems of him, as I said, being in being in the place. We hear the sound of the snow crumping underfoot. We hear um, crumping is a word he brought in, isn't it? Yes, it is yeah. a word. But yes, it's a it's a dialect word for the the particular sound a foot makes on fresh snow and. How far did he use the informal language of the village? Jonathan said it goes back to medieval times. A lot of words, we, masses and masses of words are new to me uh, mm. and that, that particular area, to, uh, and he brought those in. How far did, did he bring these in naturally and then how far did he have to tame it, as it were, for publication? No, It's a good question. I mean, he's not a dialect poet like William Barnes or something like that. His poetry, he uses dialect quite sparingly but very powerfully. I mean, one thing that's very noticeable about his poems that people, a lot of people love about his poems is their informality. It sounds like a conversation. Um, but then now and again, these words come into great and powerful effect. A word like gulsh, um, which is the sound a tree makes when it falls on wet ground, or a word like prog, which is a dialect word for prodding, um, which he uses in a poem called The Mouse's Nest to um, give a sense of... And, that, and when, when a word like that appears, a word like prog, we can kind of sense that it means prod, but it also gives his readers... He knew most of his readers wouldn't have been familiar with the dialect, but it gives them a bit of a startle in the way in which, I suppose, he was a bit startled when he saw this mouse scurrying out of the nest. So he uses these words artfully, I think, um, and very deliberately to create effects of surprise or to create a sense of real vividness in the description because these words convey very particular senses. Um, like I said, um, the sound of a tree falling on wet ground, the sound of snow underfoot, fresh snow. So, so he, and, and readers at the time would have been alerted to those senses in the glossary. They were given um, those meanings. So yep. it, it brings vividness, but it also creates these other effects in the poem's effects of surprise. So... He also likes describing things that he, he, he must know very few people have seen, like a mouse scurrying across the field with her, with her, with her young clinging on to her teats as she scurries across the field. And he said, a grotesque sight, but I think he gets great pleasure in describing that. Simon, um, what was... Can we go back to the culture of the place? Um, and um, there was a culture of the place. Uh, I, I feel that even nowadays people might condescend to that sort of culture. But it was quite rich, wasn't it? Can you tell us about it? This is a little place, Helpston. What was really going on that enriched it? And out of which he wrote? I think, as Jonathan's already alluded to, there was enormous uh, resource for Claire in terms of ballads and folk songs, fiddle songs down the pub. Claire teaches himself to read music. It was just miraculous, really. Um, but there is also, I mean, you only need one book in the village for everyone to read it eventually. And there is a, a sense that, although some people are very suspicious of Claire's habits, roaming the fields on his own, writing poems on his hat, as he says himself, um, there is... Uh, 
in his family and in other parts of the village a real valuation of literacy and literary culture, even though it's a sense there is a sense that it's quite remote. So Claire's um, own bedrock of kind of uh, familial life supports him in getting a, a rudimentary education, but then is really proud of him when he starts writing poetry. Eventually, when he confesses it to his parents, and there is a sense of real pride when he publishes. So that there's no resistance to it. There is, however, always a slight awkwardness in any working class writer, as we would call them now, entering the middle class, bourgeois, whatever you want to call it, world of literary culture. And I think Claire's always got this awkwardness, both a sense that he's doing something that takes him out of his labouring life and that puts him in a world which he hasn't really got the, the social skills for, he's not trained for. And incidentally, in, uh, coming to your point, is that he, he used to write on scraps of paper and tuck them to a hole, into a hole in all his mother, who's illiterate, and found them and used them as firelighters. He says that his parents are illiterate, but there is some paradox in that because uh, they, 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 they're clearly they're real versions of literacy. So his dad knows at least 100 songs on the fiddle, for example, which is itself a form of literacy. But his mother is illiterate and burns the early poems. She does. However, she also supports his education. You know, they save really hard. And part of his own labour when he's you know, nine or ten when he starts threshing is to save money to go to pay for school. Um, so that, But there's always this contest in his life between between labour and between, uh, you know, leisure and writing. And there isn't much space for, uh, much time for, for writing. Um, but there, it's not exactly that his village is against literary culture, but there is also a suspicion of his habits. He was born into a world of war, you know, 1793, Britain's already at war with revolutionary France. It doesn't end really until the Napoleon War... Napoleonic Wars uh, finished in 1815 when Claire's in his 22nd year. So there is a suspicion of anyone walking around the countryside on their own. Um, and Claire, which is one of the reasons when he buys the book, uh, The Seasons, coming back from Stamford, he jumps over a, a wall into a Burley estate in order to secrete his reading. So there's always a sense that he's got to be secret. And secrecy is a really important motif in Claire's life. And um, back to Jonathan. Um, he's, we've got this boy... He leaves school at 11. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's doing... And then the next big step is that he becomes a published poet. It seems a very big step indeed. How did it, it does. Happen? I mean, the, so he, you know, through his teens and um, early 20s, he's, he's writing this poetry, but he's also working in the fields, has a variety of part-time jobs. For a time, he works as a lime burner. Um, but then he, he has a bit of luck um, because uh, he, he, his poetry is seen by a local publisher. And there was... You know something of a um, a provincial literary culture of the time. It wasn't actually uncommon for a labouring class writer to get into print, but usually when this happened, it would be with a very small local distribution. But this local publisher called Drury happened to have a cousin, um, a man called John Taylor, who was a London publisher, and Taylor had a very good eye for new talent. He kind of discovered John Keats. Um, so Drury says to him, look, I found this local poet. I think he's really good. Let's join together and publish his work both provincially here in, in, in Stamford and down in London. So in 1820, Clare's first volume, it's called Poems Descriptive of Rural Life and, and Scenery by John Clare, the Northamptonshire peasant poet, is published in London and Taylor, the cousin of the local publisher, brings him to London and does a kind of brilliant marketing campaign. Robert Burns had been enormously successful a generation earlier in Scotland. So publishers in, a, in London were, in a way, on the lookout for 
the English Burns. The, and, the singing plowman of exactly. the, the Borders. Exactly, and that's yeah. what they thought Clare could be. So 1820, first book published, he's brought to London, he has his portrait painted, and it's a great success. But two things you 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 mentioned uh, the, the the enormous number of the local publishers up in the northwest in, in the Lake District. Lots of little publishers, lots of little local poets published at that time. Little local, lots of local poets published by small publishing houses this time. And also, there's there's underneath that is that we didn't go into it, but just to mention, Wordsworth had established writing about nature something magnificent to do. Uh, Kelly and Sheets had written about nature, so the idea of writing about nature was very much in the air, as much as the 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 rural peasant genius, as they like calling them, Burns, and they, they thought they'd found the English Burns. Exactly right, yeah. And it wasn't the first time this had happened. A, a few years earlier, there was a, um, a poet also from the uh, from the East Anglian um, district, uh, called, a poet called Bloomfield, um, uh, a kind of farmer's boy. And uh, his his poems were, were published not long after Wordsworth and Coleridge's lyrical ballads. And actually, for a time, they were far more successful than, than Wordsworth and Coleridge. So, so publishers were always on the lookout for sort of new talent from unusual backgrounds. Mina Gorgi, how did Clare react to his new fame? He's taken to London. He goes, I think, four times in his life in his, we're told, hobnailed boots and a cut-down coat <laughs> and to be gawped at, uh, anthropologically, perhaps. Anyway, how did he react to his new fame? Well, it unsettled him. I think it made him very anxious. Um, he worried that he'd be forgotten very, very quickly, as he knew people like Bloomfield had been forgotten, Burns had been forgotten. Even, as uh, Jonathan said, Wordsworth... Um, had been, you know, was neglected um, when Claire was writing in the early days. So he he worried that he'd be picked up and then sort of tossed aside by the, by the kind of the world of um, fame. And um, so it made him. Uh, and also, in those brief years of fame, he was treated, as you say, like a kind of a cultural curiosity. People like Pocahontas. Would, Yes, I mean, people would come, the local gentry and and people from further afield, from London, would come in their coaches to watch him at work in the field or to see how dirty his cottage was, to come and have a peep at the, uh, at the, the, this peasant poet. And he said he he hates what he calls the peep show, the puppet show, he calls it. It makes me sympathy with him, haven't you? Yeah. Push off. Yeah, anyway, that that was happening. But well, let's talk about him. So it unsettled him. How did it unsettle him? Well, it, it could be that it contributed to the decline in his mental health. We don't really know, but... Um, you know, the, the the being lifted up and the great excitement of that and then the being dropped down into neglect and obscurity. And it's true that that neglect that um, does coincide with the beginnings of his um, his mental decline. Um, it, we can never be sure, of course. Being a bit unfair, I've been a bit unfair there. I mean, people came because they liked his poetry as well as everything mm. else. And people from the upper classes supported him. He was given small pensions and he was published and helped along his way. That is also true and, and very helpful indeed, the local... The, the local wall he'd climbed over, the man who lived inside the local wall gave him a small pension and so on and so forth. So, so he was upheld by people in London. Oh, absolutely. People in London and also locally, as you said, um, the, the Marquis, uh, the local Marquis from Burley House, he went to visit him in his hobnail boots and, you know, he, he was going to support him. I mean, Clare had worked as a gardener there in Burley House and then the Marquis invites him to visit and offer some support. And although Clare finds it mortifyingly embarrassing, the, the clatter of his hobnail boots on marble, he, 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 he says he's so ashamed of the sound they, they utter on the marble. But still, as you say, I mean, he was being offered help, even though it may that the kind of the shift of worlds made him uncomfortable, but yes, he was offered support and help. It's true. 
Simon, it must have knocked him sideways, though, this, this business. All of a sudden, he's, he's walking on marble floors in London, being introduced to Charles Lamb, uh, and we told Coleridge, and so it goes. Um, and, but he comes back and back. It's a, it's a huge magnet, isn't it, Hepstone? He comes back. How, does he, how do his fellow labourers, how does his fellow, do we know anything about how the village took this and how he, how he kept describing them? Well, I think there's a number of ways of looking at this. That the labouring class poets uh, wrote to him a lot, uh, and they would send him their work and say that, "Well, I want to get into print like you did. You know, how did you do it and all that?" And sometimes he'd get annoyed because, of course, if you received a letter, you had to pay for it, and he didn't have a lot of money. Um, so, uh, but but there there was a sense, as I said before, that of suspicion in Claire's work, uh, of sorry, of Claire's work. Claire's a, a great celebrant of of kind of ritual and uh, habit and custom in in village life in Helpston and. And these things, they are particular and very local, but they do have a really broad reach across real life in the what country. What are they? Jonathan well, mentioned uh, them going back to the Middle Ages, so what are they? One example would be, so in the open field system before enclosure, which we'll probably talk about in a moment, um, there would be a regular, um, before the sowing of seed, the, the whole village effectively would go and, and collect stones from the fields. Um, if, you fa- if you're a kid and you found a stone with a hole in it, you would try and... Um, string that to the master or the farmer's uh, the back of the master's coat and if you did that then you would win a prize off all the other kids right what claire says is this was fantastic rituals there's an enormous amount of tactile play with sticks with pudges as little puddles as he calls them um with stones and they're ritualized in 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 folk life uh, at the time what claire says the moment enclosure comes and that that the sense of the village coming together in those big fields to those big jobs together those customs disappear. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So there are fertility rituals and marriage rituals and rituals around predicting who's going to marry who and, you know, uh, rituals about going to a local spring and drinking the water to, to get healthy. And these things are very much curtailed by the process of enclosure. But we are talking about a close, busy thatch of daily life, aren't yeah. we? Bounded by a very small area, uh, but also figured by great things like the big tree and the stream down there and the wood across there which are a massive part of the furniture of the life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, many times Claire will refer to a a bush or a a tree or a a lane, of course, uh, and fields by name. You know, they're almost characters in his work. The intimacy and the detail with which he kind of maps out his local village, it's not just his village, it's anywhere within a day's walk or so, um, he maps in, in really close detail. Jonathan, can you give us an instance or two of the of the detail? We've mentioned the detail several times. Just just an instance of, uh, of what yeah, we mean um, by that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, just pick, I mean, pick, he, he, he described birds' nests in great detail. Oh, it's marvellous on birds' in great detail yeah, and yeah. so on. Um, the, he, you know, he, he'll, he'll, he'll take the reader on a walk um, and then he'll he'll spot a bird's nest, um, and um, he'll he'll look at the, um, the the markings on the egg and say that it looks pen scribbled, like writing. That's for Yellowhammer's nest. Um, so an incredible eye for detail, but then also, as Simon says, this very very strong sense of particular places. So, for instance, there was a a bush called Langley Bush where the village always used to to meet.
seat in, in a kind of village parliament that almost went back to the Middle Ages. And the, uh, there's a lovely poem of his called Remembrances, where he, he just recites the names of bushes, lanes and trees. And these, he says, are all things that have gone because of this thing, the enclosure. So what, we should perhaps talk about the, the enclosure. You better get on to the enclosure. Um, Mention often, let's get back We have, so let, let's so try and they decided that they, yeah. they, In the East Wisdom, they decided this open land, going for centuries and so on, and was common land for many people, should be privatised. And the privatisation considered fencing it off, barring ordinary people from it, diverting streams, cutting down woods, uh, taking it over, and the trespassers were prosecuted. Exactly so. Couldn't imagine a better summary than that. <laughs> there are better. Um, 1809, when Clare's 16, the Enclosure Act is passed for Helpston. So over the next 10 years or so, the landscape is transformed. And, of course, that's at exactly the time that he's growing up and his childhood is disappearing. So he always associates the old open fields, the open moor, the common lands, with a childhood that has gone. And he sees enclosure as an offence not only to village customs but also to nature. So all of a sudden the villagers couldn't go to that little spring because it was on a piece of enclosed land with a no trespassing sign. But then he says even the birds um, are prevented from going there and uh, trees get cut down because of the enclosure. There's a wonderful poem of his called The Fallen Elm where he, he, he looks at this elm tree, huge tree that had been part of village life for generations and suddenly a man owns it and decides he's going to cut it down for profit and that's the end of that tree, that's the end of a long history. It's a form of tyranny, he says. In that poem, Remembrances, he says, enclosure like a Bonaparte came and destroyed everything. And destroyed his, as it were, his... Um his, his reservoir, his, his reservoir of, of, of detail, his, his, mm. his, the means exactly. through which he And in some poetry. sense, his identity. I think this is what Mina was uh, suggesting when we, we talk about the decline in Claire's mental health, he, that, that his sense of who he was was so much bound to his community, to the landscape of his early years, that when that began to go, coupled with the kind of alienation that he inevitably felt having been to London and come back, so, becoming an outsider, his whole sense of self begins to disintegrate. Before we disintegrate, let's talk a bit more about his poetry. He is <coughs> let's reasonably contemporaneous with Keats. His publisher also publishes, and as you said at the beginning, has some cause to have discovered Keats. They don't meet, they almost meet, and so on. But... Can, Mina, can you give us some idea of the difference people then saw? Let's take the nightingale. Uh, and we've got, uh, I've got sheets here. Uh, I saw sheets. We can all sing if you want. Anyway, never mind. It's uh, of his and of Claire's, a bit from the nightingale. Now, now can you just describe... They didn't... Uh, Keats thought that Claire merely described it. Claire thought that Keats was pretentious. I don't think he used that word. Well, I mean, over fancy. Claire did admire Keats actually, but he did say that he described things as they appeared to his fancies, not as um, as though he'd seen them for himself. So, and um, Keats said that's right that that Claire's work was too descriptive. But Keats unfortunately died before Claire's best poetry got going, and one of his best poems is this poem, "The Nightingale's Nest," and it's such a, a wonderful poem and so different from Keats's wonderful um, ode. Partly what makes Claire's poem so special is that the kind of informality, the way he takes you by the hand and brings you into this um, um, 
brings you into um, see the nightingale. He gets at one point he gets onto his hands and knees and he watches her while she sings. Um, and where Keats has this um, and describes the nest in incredible incredible detail, detail. the oaken leaves and so on. That's right. I mean, not only does Claire's nightingale um, tremble in her ecstasy, her feathers stand on end, um, where Keats doesn't see the nightingale at all, but also Claire, uh, very importantly, takes us to her nest. And her nest is made um, of dead oaken leaves, he said, and velvet moss and scant and spare of scarce materials, down and hair. So he's taking us into the centre of this nightingale's universe and the texture of this this nest he describes to us um, in, um, so carefully. Um, and, and another thing I think that... also he does it, I mean, he, he says... What's the line here? Hath me marvel, had made me marvel that so famed a bird should mm. have no better dress than Rossiter Brown. It's brilliant. So this line. is very down to earth. Very down to earth. But at the same time, interestingly, the word russet, as Claire knew full well, was a word associated with labourers, with peasants. It was the kind of cl- the colour that they tended to wear, the homespun cloth. So at the same time as being absolutely true that the nightingale is a sort of a russet brown, it's also a way of connecting with this um, symbol of poetry on his level. But Keats was very keen. I mean, Keats is a wonderful poet. But mm. I mean, to take the thing, he's connecting with, he, in the second line, my sense of hemlock I had drunk. That's Socrates. Mm. And what leafy words I'd gone. That's back, back to classical. Mm. The dried in the trees mm. is with the nymphs and so on. That's what he's going for. And uh, that's what people began to prefer. Well, except poor Keats was attacked for doing that because they said, oh, well, you're a cockney. You're, 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 not, not, allowed you're not, not allowed to do that. Not allowed to be educated. Absolutely. Yes. So there's a kind of interesting parallel between um, Keats and Clare. We tend to forget that about Keats that he was um, but it's wonderful the way that Keats goes for them doesn't he you think I don't know anything look I know a lot Uh, I know as much as you and more and I can do poetry as well and he he doesn't take any notice he just keeps drilling in to what is at his feet or under his feet it's true. I mean, he's not so interested in what the, the real nightingale. He's, his nightingale is an immortal bird, a symbol of poetry, a symbol of um, of, of music, actually. And uh, but Claire's. What's special about Claire's is it's both those things. It's both a real trembling, actual bird that, and Claire's worried about how the bird is made anxious when he comes close to. That's, that's something very special that mm. Claire, in many of his bird poems, is thinking about how the bird is feeling. It's, it's panicking. It's scared. And Keats is, you know, isn't thinking about the bird in that way at all, that there isn't that dynamic between the poet and the bird in that Sorry. way. Sorry. Simon, do we know how Claire's publishers and readers reacted to his verse? Do we know? Yeah. Uh, did that? Can you just give, tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 he was reviewed very widely. The, the, the first couple of um, uh, collections in 1820 and 1821 were very successful, especially the first one, went through four editions in the first year. Um, the reviewers were um, expressed both um, surprised that someone from what they called an uneducated background, with no, you know, with very little formal education, and we, who is sold by his um, uh, editor John Taylor and his publisher John Taylor um, in in the introduction as being the poorest of the poor. So there is this vogue for not just a regional and dialect verse, but also poetry which includes the poor. And Wordsworth probably initiated that with the lyrical ballads, poems like "Old Man Travelling," "We Are Seven That Claire Knows Very Well. But Taylor says, "Yes, we've we've seen these poets, but this poet is really poor. This poet, the the, the life that Claire leaves lives for Taylor's readers is shockingly poor, and and he makes sure that you know that, so that the reviewers both are surprised and." Uh, you know, um, amazed at his work and the quality of his work, but also there is always that 
But if only he knew grammar a little bit better. If, and maybe, you know, all these dialect terms, well, they're OK, you know. But where's the organising principle? And one of the big tensions for Clare, and I think this is one of his great contributions, actually, to the literary tradition, is that he doesn't always want to drive a poem's narrative. So there isn't an organising principle telling a story. And often he was criticised for listing things, and this, and that because he didn't want to have an overarching kind of concept of how the countryside or our rural life or the natural world should be packaged. But on the whole, it's interesting that the, the as it were, the uh, intellectual perception and appreciation of what he did wasn't really recognised until the 20th century, uh, a couple of centuries later, uh, and with from uh, from uh, London right through to Ted Hughes and so on. Jonathan, back to you. He, we, we've the, what speckled this conversation as well as enclosures. The, that damnable act, which uh, which it certainly was, which uh, barred most people, keeping people out. Um, is his is his uh, mental ill health, and which was then straightforwardly called lunacy. He went into a private asylum. He came out, and then he went into an asylum where he stayed for uh, t- last twenty four years of his life, although he had access to go outside and so. On. What was Wrong with him? Well, reading his letters and his journals and uh, getting a sense from correspondence people writing to him, um, it looks as though he had what we would now call bipolar disorder. There would be periods of weeks where he would struggle to get out of bed in the morning. There would be other periods where he couldn't stop writing. He wrote over three and a half thousand poems. He was one of the most prolific of all English poets. So that does suggest a bipolar pattern of mania and depression. But there seems to have been something more complicated going on as well. Um, One of the tragedies of Clare's life is that as his poetry got better it became less known. There was a, there was a recession, uh, poetry publishing uh, got into trouble, Taylor went out of business. And by the time you get to the early 1830s, he's struggling to publish his poetry. Um, and he's beginning to be, f- feel very cut off, both from the world of the fame that he's now lost, but also he gets cut off from his own community. His friends gather together and get him and his family a cottage at another village about three miles away from Helpston. And somehow that's what tips him over the edge into madness, losing that immediate environment. He, he says that he, he just feels he's lost his own sense of who he is. And it's soon after that move that he's sent to the, the lunatic asylum. And then, quite soon after that, we have a walk. He decides he's, he's given the freedom of the grounds, and he goes into the town and so on and so. On. And he decides just to walk home. It's eighty miles. Uh, he has nothing to eat except grass. Uh, every night he, he lies down with his head facing north, so he knows where to go the next morning. Uh, and he writes that. I haven't read what he's written. That I presume you have a big prose account. It's yeah. It's a beautiful piece of prose, three or four pages long, uh, called Journey Out of Essex, which just describes this walk out of the asylum. It's important to know that the uh, lunatic asylums at the time were relatively liberal places. We're not talking about straitjackets and iron bars. Uh, he was allowed to walk in the woods, and that's why um, he was able to escape to go back home. But by this time, he he is increasingly having delusions. In that first asylum, the private asylum in the Epping Forest, um, he's written poems in the voice of Lord. Bar- and he's he's announced that he that he, he is Jack Randall, a famous prize fighter. It seems to be a real, a, 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 you know, a real psychological disturbance there. Huh. Do you want to come in? No, right. I'm going to Simon. Simon Gracie, how isolated was he in his later years? In the North? one of his great poems is written there. So he's writing 
Very, very fine poems. I am the what I am. Uh, you might like to recite the first few lines of it. Uh, I'm, I, I am the what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. Uh, that'll do, I think, <laughs> before I start messing up. But no, the, 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 so, so for a poet who is regarded as ecocentric rather than egocentric, so he's interested in uh, the natural world and the material world much more than the self, actually Claire does write a lot of poems that are considerations of the stormy self and the, and the depressed self in, in some ways. One of the reasons, he, he, one of the routes of access for a lot of people is because of that. But he continues, there's no doubt he continues to write, and that his, his physicians, both in the first asylum in, in Epping Forest and in uh, Northampton, uh, the county asylum that he's um, committed to in 1841 for the rest of his life, they regard writing as a good thing for him to be doing. I mean, what, I mean, just thinking about that relationship between the eco and the ego, Simon was talking about, one of the most beautiful poems he writes in the asylum, I think, is called Clocker Clay. It's a Northamptonshire dialect word for ladybird. And that poem, um, he imagines himself into the being of a ladybird hiding in a cowslip people bell, cowslip bell, in a storm. And he imagines what it's like to be this little ladybird buffeted by the, by the tempest in a, in a storm. And on the one hand, it, it is a sort of expression of his own feelings, but on the other hand, it is a, it's a genuine, it's a sort of sense of, I mean, what, which other poet imagines himself, imagines what it's like to be a ladybird in that way, inside a cowslip um, bell? And it's a, it's a beautiful poem. In the, in the cowslip bell, peeps I lie, hidden from the buzzing fly, while green grass beneath me lies, pearled with dew like fishes' eyes. So he's, it, that poem is sort of expressing a kind of sense of menace um, as well as um, the cosy safety of being inside the cowslip bell. Quickly, Jack. Well, Claire writes these beautifully innocent uh, poems uh, of nature. He also adopts the voices of poets like Byron and Burns to give himself a sense of identity that's confident, that's confident with women, that's confident uh, with the literary marketplace. But there's also an overriding sense in some poems, especially the Byronic ones of 1841, of utter despair with both the literary marketplace and with reliance on women and relationships. Jonathan. I mean, uh, the extraordinary th thing for, for me about um, his time in the, the asylum, uh, in one sense, he is very isolated. Um, one of his sons comes to visit him. His wife doesn't visit him in the entire 24 years that, that, that he's there. Um, but yet he, he still manages to, to make friends. They let him go into Northampton, into the town, and he, uh, he sits outside the church and he, he writes poems for local young men to sort of uh, give to their girlfriends on St. Valentine's Day in return for some tobacco. Um, and so he's got a little cottage industry going there. But many of the poems in the asylum are about this extraordinary sense of, of mental isolation, of being being cut off from nature, cut off from family, cut off from the places that he knew. Um, but fortunately, uh, this, this enlightened lunatic asylum superintendent, William Knight, wrote them down and many of them were published after his death. And probably the greatest of them all is uh, this, this poem, I Am. I am the self-consumer of my woes. And it's, it's an extraordinary poem about, about loss, into the nothingness of scorn and noise, into the living sea of waking dream, dreams, where there is neither sense of life or joys, but the vast shipwreck of my life's esteems. Even the dearest that I love the best are strange, nay, rather stranger than the rest. And extraordinary sort of sense of isolation there. And then in the final stanza, he longs to go back to childhood, to be lying with the grass below, above the vaulted sky. 
Why did Cloud drop out of fashion so much? I mean, he in the last many years, if like, it wasn't published. Uh, anybody want to take that up? I mean, I think it, it, he was very unlucky, Claire, wasn't he? Because um, he's after Byron dies, sort of romantic poetry kind of comes to an end. And then there's this odd sort of transitional period before Lord Tennyson and Victorian poetry comes along. And the novel heaved interview. And, of course, the novel heaved interview. Um, Claire did once start trying to write a novel. He'd have been a rather good novelist, the way he writes sort of stories about village life. Um, But uh, he just disappears from view. He can't get his work published, and then he's in the asylum. And as you said earlier, it's only in the 20th century that poets like Edmund Blunden and uh, uh, Seamus Heaney, began recovering. Ted, Ted Hughes got him in Poets' Corner. Just as a slight qualification for that, that, that Claire is uh, talked about a lot. So there's a rumour in 1840 that Claire dies, and it, it spreads across the country. Every local newspaper mm-hmm. talks about it. And then it's denied by his um, the bloke who runs the asylum and says, let's, run, let's raise a big subscription for Claire to pay the asylum fees because everyone owes me money. Uh, and then throughout the 1850s and 60s, uh, big Victorian writers like Samuel Smiles, Edwin Paxton Hood, Eliza Cook write really celebratory verse about Claire. A lot of people use Claire as an example and a warning to working-class people don't have literary aspirations because you'll end up mad or drunk or dead, you know, because that's what <laughs> well, happens. They'll to... all end up dead. Yeah, yeah. But, well, they'll all but end up not, dead. But not they much might... of a yeah, choice there. But they, might ex... <laughs> they might be accelerated to that death by their aspirations <laughs> and by drink. So they'll talk about Chatterton or Burns, and Claire becomes an example of that. And then through the 19th century, you get some really important autobiography and biographical studies of Claire. So it's not that he's absolutely forgotten. It's that the, the big literary heavyweights, like Dickens, for example, were incredibly dismissive yeah, of Claire. I'm surprised to read that Dickens dismissed him so much. It's an odd one, that, isn't it, it is really? Odd, yeah. It's an unfortunate uh, miss for Claire, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and bad judgment on Dickens. I mean, I thought, because his detail is so brilliant, and there he was. Anyway, which, you, Mina, no, don't you not? I thought you wanted to come in there. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the, 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 the increasing reputation, and the reputation was... Uh, Let's let's take Hughes and Heaney and Paulin. It's been it's no longer the peasant poet. It's no allowances have to be made anymore. He's one of the poets. He's he's in the top canon. It's absolutely right. I mean, you know, when when I was at school in in in, in the nineteen seventies, you know, we were taught Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Keats, Shelley, Barr, and they were the big six romantic poets. Claire, a few poems, like some of the lovely animal poems, like wonderful poem about the badger. Um, the, these were in anthologies uh, for for you know often for younger children, but it it really has only been in the last sort of twenty or thirty years that largely because of the work of poets who have admired his extraordinary eye for detail. It's only in that time that he's come to be regarded as one of the absolutely central great poets of the 19th century. Well, thank you all very much. Thanks to Mina Gorgi, Simon Kubeshi and Jonathan Bate. Next week we'll be talking to Al Khwarizmi, I'm very sorry about that, who invented algebra and the maths of the early Islamic world. I'll get it right by next week, I promise. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I got I am lined up to do, and you got it. But I thought you read it very well, so that's absolutely fine. You, I thought you were going to go on. I, I don't like that poem. Like <laughs> I'm it. on my own in that. Apparently, oh. yeah, I'm not a big fan. I mean, partly because it imagines a world without women, yeah. which is the most ridiculous situation for Claire. Where not imagine, imagines a world without women's emotions, where women never smiled or wept. 
And that, to me, Claire wants women all the time. It's rapaciously sexual, you know. Yeah, but you see, one thing we didn't have time to talk about is this, this extraordinary thing about Mary Joyce, who is his, um, his yeah. childhood yeah. sweetheart, yeah, who yeah. he wasn't allowed... She was from a slightly better class of farmer. Mm. Uh, the father prevented the relationship. And he always uses this figure of Mary Joyce, uh, you know, the first love, the, the innocent lost love, as, as a kind of symbol of... In, of, of innocence, of childhood, a kind of prelapsarian symbol. And um, then, of course, you know, when in his madness he starts thinking he's got two wives and he actually thinks it's Mary Joyce he's, he's, he's walking home to. So I don't think it's misogynistic in no, that sense. No, it's more, yeah. um, you know, uh, imagining a time Why didn't you say he didn't like it on air for that reason? That would have been interesting. Sorry. Oh, OK, yeah, well, I, 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 I don't always know whether I should express that. I mean, there's a lot of clear people who really love it, you know. And, and they, yeah, but you and don't, com- and that's interesting. Yeah, You're yeah, on the programme, yeah. they're not on the programme. <laughs> and it would have been well, defended by the other two and by myself. And so you'd, you'd have, it would be three to one against you. I mean, you can't take three of us on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that the other thing about uh, Claire and women is that he's not as successful as Burns and Byron, who are notoriously kind of great lovers and, and terrible uh, rakes, really, when it comes to the treatment of women. But he, he, he clearly uses their modelling some, in somehow to recover that kind of empowered relationship with women that he doesn't have in the asylum because he's denied the company of women mm. in the asylum. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, that is another aspect um, of his the, the question of what was wrong with him mentally. It was, it was quite interesting after I wrote my biography of him, I, I, I got a very learned letter from a doctor um, who, who was absolutely convinced that those kind of delusional symptoms that Claire had in the later years were the result of the fact that when he went to London, he did briefly get involved with the prostitutes up the Tottenham Court Road. And the treatment uh, for syphilis at that time, which was endemic in early 19th century England, the treatment was mercury. Um, and the notion that uh, mercury poisoning might have actually, you know, caused that, 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 that those um, some of those weird sort of delusions that he had it was an interesting theory. He complains mm. about pains in the groin a lot, doesn't he? There's this overarching sense of hypochondria and Claire really sets to his own any, body. Is there any evidence for mercury causing that mental yeah, there distress? Is, there is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there is. Indeed. Yeah. And, of course, syphilis itself in tertiary phase it can also cause these yes. symptoms of, mm. uh, you know, ex- extreme delusional behaviour. Mm. How did... Le- I mean... I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that question of when he's speaking in those different voices in the later silent poems. Is he, does he actually know that he's doing it? I mean, some, some people who visited him sort of said, you know, he's, he's kind of more lucid writing his poems than in his conversation. Yeah, I mean, in this conversation, I think he said he, he was convinced he was those. He was convinced he was Byron. He was convinced he was the prize fighter Jack Randall. He, you know, he, he. I think Charles the First. He thought he was at one point. Was that right? I mean, he, he thought he, when he spoke to people, he believed he was. Um, Were there any any signs of this of this condition much earlier before he went to London and, and might have met prostitutes and had the mercury? In in eighteen twenty, Edward Drury, the guy who sort of discovers him in Stamford, uh, writes to John Taylor and says that he he if Claire carries on writing this this intensely with this much energy, he's going to end up insane or worse, he's going to end up an alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, so there is there are people who are very worried about it very early on. Um, we didn't bring up the drink either then. 
No. We've given them a clean bill of health on this programme. <laughs> well, the podcast yeah. persons are getting the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's another thing, is relationship to enclosure is not clean either. That's one of the things I wanted to say. So Claire works on the enclosure gangs for about four years. Mm-hmm. He also works in a lime kiln at very, three different places. Mm-hmm. Lime, the reason there were so many lime kilns exploding through the romantic period is to provide uh, lime for the recovery of soil for, for agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, lime is, is a great fer- the great fertiliser of the age. So Claire's relationship both to women and to enclosure is never quite as clean as we want it to be. We want it to be this great environmental protest poet, but his socio-economic position is such that he doesn't really have a position that he can resist it economically. You know, he has he to, had get, to bang in those fence yeah, posts himself. Absolutely, dig the ditches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's partly well, that would have been good. Oh dear. <laughs> Honestly. (laughs) It was partly why he's so popular now also, actually, because we want him to be this great environmental poem. It's one of the reasons he's he's, um, much more widely read now, uh, because... But he, but he, I mean, you know, that great poem, The Lament of Swaddy Well, mm. where he, he, he protests in the name of the land, he speaks in the mm. voice of the land. Mm. Nobody had ever done that before. They hadn't, no, it's incredible. It's just incredible empathy that this ability to imagine what, what, what it's like to be the land, imagine what it's like to be the mole, imagine what it's like to be the bird uh, or the, the, the snipe out in the marshes, the ladybird and the cowslip mm. bell, and, and to write about that experience, that is, it's quite incredible, I think. Um, um, makes his... Who is it who said he, he, most nature poets look at nature over a five bar gate, but he's on the other side? That was Edward Thomas. Edward um, Thomas. Um, uh, right. Wonderful. Yeah. No, no writer has ever seen the life of the farm as it is really lived, as opposed yeah. to how it is looked at over yeah. a five-barred gate. Yeah. I mean, even our beloved Wordsworth does yeah. sometimes feel like he's looking over a five-barred gate. Oh, yeah. And Thomas yeah. loves Clare. I mean, he, he, he's one of his earlier well, admirers. Edward Thomas loves Clare, yeah. and, he, and he loves how he says he enumerates the flowers. He, he, he lists things, he gives things in their particularity, and he loves the sort of weedy things. I think Thomas loves Clare's weed poems, and his own poem, like um, Nettles or something, um, maybe, nettles, oh, yeah, Tall Nettles, oh, something maybe to that. But side of Claire, yeah. I think we're going to be made an offer. You can't refuse by our producer, Simon Tillerson. Well, mm. it's tea or coffee. Who likes tea or coffee? Mm. Or something else, 7.50. Uh, I think I'll have tea, please. And for more podcasts on arts and ideas from the BBC, follow the link on our website to the best of BBC Radio 3's free thinking programme. With so many new podcasts, how do you find your next obsession? Try Pocket Casts, the free podcast app designed by listeners for listeners. With curated recommendations, discovery is easy and seamless. When you find something you like, just hit play. Find all your favorite shows, old and new, at pocketcast.com or find us in the Apple app or Google Play stores. 